Amen. So Isaiah cries out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And that's exactly what the Lord did for us in Jesus Christ. He ripped the heavens open and he saw us in our need. Like little Andrew, who we baptized earlier, we are just a little bit older than Andrew, but we're no different really than him. We need grace from God. And and Jesus Christ went through that opened, ripped place out of the heavens and came for us. And he came as a little baby. And so we do celebrate that at this time of year. We celebrate that that little baby grew up and became a man. He was subject to all the miseries of this life. He was humiliated. He went through everything that we went through. What other religion has a God who suffers himself for his people? There is not one. Only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ. And he went through all the miseries of this life, and then he suffered and died on a cross. And when he died on the cross, he cried out, It is finished. It is finished. My work is accomplished for you. And it is accomplished. The redemption is accomplished for us who believe. And yet, in that first coming, we find such great hope, but we are still waiting on that second coming. We're still waiting on our full and final redemption. We are still in the wilderness. Yes, we have a greater hope than the people of Israel ever did that Isaiah was preaching to. They were in exile. They looked back to the first exodus, and they got some encouragement from that moment that God is a God who saves. But we look back to a greater exodus, the second exodus, where Jesus Christ came through that ripped heaven And he died on a cross for our sins. And he was raised from the dead so that we can have new life. But yet we still, today, as Christians, we still wander. We still wander through wilderness periods. This sermon is entitled, Jesus in Our Wandering. It could have been titled, Wandering Well. Wandering Well. How do you wander well? We can look at the Old Testament, and we can look at some of the churches in the New Testament, and we can definitely find examples of how to not wander well. Lots of good examples of how to wander and complain and groan and mumble and and go after your friend and your neighbor and your leaders and to to cry out to God, say, you've forgotten all about us. You don't even see us here. We don't even have anything. And God continues to give us daily bread, just enough. He doesn't give us everything we need. He doesn't give us a five-year plan. He doesn't give us millions of dollars in the bank normally. And even if you have millions of dollars in the bank, man, can't put your hope there either. And so Jesus comes for us as the bread from heaven. But we have to learn how to feast on him. I don't know about you. I had a hard week this week. It wasn't the hardest week I've ever had, that's for sure. Um, I went back and looked at a time when I deeply studied Isaiah 10 years ago in my, my devotions with the Lord. In the week that I was studying Isaiah 63 and 64 was the week that the week right before Claire came uh, into the world, 10, almost 10 years ago. And that week was a week of stress as well, a week of waiting. Uh, how, how long, oh Lord? I'm sure Olivia was feeling it more than I was, but we were feeling it together. We, all, we walk through these, these weeks and these months and these years of wandering. How do you wander well? One of the best books I've ever read on prayer is A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I would highly recommend it if you've never read it. 
It's one of the only books on prayer I've ever read, and I didn't feel worse after I was done. I didn't feel like a worse Christian that I needed to pray more and have a more disciplined prayer life, and there's all these things I need to be doing. It's a totally different kind of book on prayer where he really focuses on just how to go straight from the wanderings of our lives, the brokenness of our lives, the sin and the misery we experience in this world, and how do you learn how to go directly to Christ in our real lives? He talks about how you can use prayer as, you can use our sufferings as a catalyst for prayer. Why? Because of what Christ has already done for us. Because of what Christ has accomplished, you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get your theology just right and get your words just perfectly well because you're talking to God. You can go directly to God, just like this person did in Isaiah, just like Isaiah prayed. We can learn from Isaiah's prayer how to, to wander well. So in this, in this passage that Renee read for us, there are three instructions for us about how to pray when we are wandering. First of all, we learn how to pray with hope. Second, how to pray with honesty. And third, how to pray with humility. So first, let's look at prayer that hopes. We look at verses 7 through 10. Before I get into that, you say maybe prayer that hopes. That's, a, that's an idealistic way to start, Corey. I don't know that I can really get there. If you just tell me I'm wandering, it feels a bit um, contrived. Um, it feels a bit inauthentic, unempathetic, impossible. Well, this is the Bible. I'm telling you what the Bible says. The Bible says when you pray, you should pray with hope. Why? You should pray with hope because of what Christ has already done for you. You are not praying in a random vacuum where you have no information about who God is. You're praying with hope because you serve a great God, the God of salvation history. And we find the character of God articulated for us in Isaiah 63, 7 through 9. Let me read that for you again. He says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And so he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Now, Isaiah is talking about, he's reflecting back on the first exodus. He's reflecting back on Israel being a son or a child of God. That God looked upon them, and when he saw them in their moment of need, he didn't recoil from them. He moved toward them even more so out of mercy and compassion. And he leads them through the exodus to safety. His loving kindness leads him to merciful action. This is not a God, and this is a danger for us as Reformed Presbyterians. This is not a God who is perfunctorily executing a task that he sovereignly willed somewhere back in history. This is not the picture we have of God. The picture we have of God here is of a father who is moved 
by the situation that he finds his child in because he loves them and his love, his steadfast love for them compels him to mercy. That is the picture we have of God here. And why is that important to understand the heart and the character of God? When you're hiring someone, if you have the opportunity to do that, you, you know that past performance is the best predictor of future performance. It's the best predictor. How did, how did this person respond in the past? It's a good indication of how they're going to respond in the future. How did God respond in the past? He is a God of sovereign mercy. He's a God who sees us in our sin and our misery and our hurt and our brokenness, and he responds with compassion. And so, therefore, when we get to the New Testament, we get to Jesus, what is God going to do? He's going to rend the heavens. He's going to send his son, not just because it was sovereignly decided in the, the back stage of redemptive history. No, he's going to do it because he loves. He's going to do it because he cares. He's going to do it because he sees us. Jesus didn't die on the cross to fulfill the pages of future theology books. He did it because he loved us. He did it because he cares. This is the character of God. He's a God of sovereign mercy. It says, in our affliction, he himself was afflicted. He's talking about, Isaiah's talking about, he's talking about the exodus, that God was afflicted, that he afflicted himself in the Old Testament, that he personally took it upon himself to save his people. That's the emotion of God. But this is the same emotion. He's also predicting the future. He's showing us what Christ would do. That in our affliction, in order to save us, he himself would be afflicted. He doesn't just snap his fingers and make it happen. He actually makes it happen through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. All of his compassion is aroused because he loves us. In this case, it's not the angel of his presence who saves them by parting the waters. It is God himself who parts the waters on the cross so that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we can be saved. We can move through him and his resurrection into glory. Have you ever had a child who was in need? Have you ever had a child, one of your children, or a child that you know, and you saw them in their, the situation that they're in, and they were really in a desperate place. As a parent, there is no greater emotion that you can have or that I can have than I will do anything to help my child. Anything. Anything. I know you would too. But I am a flawed, limited, broken man, broken father, who cannot truly save my children from whatever distresses that they're in. I can provide some relief but I cannot save them. I cannot meet their most desperate needs. But God can. But God can, and he does. He is the good father, the perfect father. He is the only one who can see us in our sin and misery and part the waters. He's the only one who can die on the cross, and he's the only one in whom we can put our hope. So it's prayer that hopes. As we go into prayer, in our wanderings, we can pray with hope. Pray with hope that God's not going to leave us here. He's not going to hang us out to dry. There's a first exodus. There's a second exodus. We need multiple mini exoduses in our life for God to get us out of things that are going on. And ultimately, there will be a final exodus when we will reach heaven's glory. We will. All of this world, all the broken things will be made new. All of it. And yet we wait because we don't know when. And we don't know how. 
And so this prayer then moves into the depths. It talks about in verse 13, we are in the depths. We are walking through the wilderness still. And we have longings in our hearts. And so the second point is a prayer that is honest. If you want to wander well, you need to hope and you need to be honest with God. Sometimes honesty with God for us is very hard, especially as adults. Children instinctively know to to just scream out for help whenever they need help. They don't have any illusion that they can meet their own needs. They don't have any problem. If they're in a home where they know their parents are there, or someone is there, they're going to cry out for help. But we as adults get trained somehow. We get trained not to do that. We, We develop a spiritual muteness where we just don't know how to articulate anymore that we're in need. We don't know how to do it. We've been told maybe we're too cynical. Maybe we think, ah, God's not going to show up. Or maybe we're too do-it-yourself in our generation. Oh, man, I'm going to try to do literally everything in my own strength before I get to the point where I'm going to ask God for help. Man, we need to learn from children. We need to cry out to the Lord. This is prayer that is honest. So the First of all, we need to be honest with God about the kind of distress that you're facing. And there's two kinds of distress. The first kind of distress comes to us because of other people's sin against us. I touched on this last week, but I want to go down a little deeper on this point. So there are times when we suffer, like the children of Israel were suffering in Egypt, where some of the suffering they were experiencing, at least, was because they were under a dictatorial crazy leader, Pharaoh. And they were experiencing suffering because of the sin of Pharaoh. For us, the the misery of this world, as it talks about in the Heidelberg Catechism, this is just being a part of this broken world. And in this broken world, sometimes you have people in your life, it could be a friend, it could be an authority figure, who hurt you. It could be a coach, it could be a parent, it could be a pastor. And in this case, the sin that's most affecting you is actually sin that's happened to you that's not your fault. You didn't do anything to deserve being treated like that. Sometimes this happens in church. Sometimes this happens in your home. When other people hurt us, we need to be honest with God and other people about it. But we're talking about being honest with God in this particular moment. We need to be honest with God. You need to be able to identify if you've been hurt by others You need to be able to identify that. And you don't want to be mute before the Lord. You can cry out to him and say, God, have mercy on me. And God delights to run to us as the true father who never fails us. He may or may not give you relief from that exact situation, but I promise you he will meet you and he will visit you with his compassion and with his spirit and he will help you in that moment. But that's distress that comes because of other people's sin. There is also distress that comes to us because of our own sin. And that is, uh, comes out in verse 10 with the people of God after the exodus. As yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And so he turned as God and became their enemy. And he himself fought against them. So even though we have blessings that have come to us at the cross and in the resurrection... We often, uh, in response to those great blessings from God and other blessings that he gives us, we, in turn, rebel against God. We are not grateful for what he's done. We forget what God has done. We don't really believe what he's done. 
in the moment or in various moments of our lives, and we pursue other idols. And so God, because he loves us, it says he becomes our enemy. Now, he's, not, he's never our ultimate enemy. What that means is he turns against us for what purpose? He turns against us to lead us back to himself. If you think about a church that goes through a process with someone who, um, the idea, it's like a restoration process. This person is, is sinning. They've been confronted. The goal, the church may feel like the enemy to this person in the moment, but the hope of the church is to win this person back. The goal of any kind of process where there's confrontation about sin is, is reconciliation. It is grace. And so God becomes the enemy of his people for a purpose, and the purpose is that they will turn away from themselves in this terrible direction that they're heading in, and they will turn to him, the living God. He's doing this because he knows that he is their only hope. He is their only hope. He's the only hope of sinners. There has been so many times in my own personal life where I can feel God opposing me. He's not always helping me. He's not always win behind my back. Sometimes he's hemming me in behind and before. He's showing me I don't need to continue on in this path. I need to repent. I need to lay it down. That argument I'm having with someone, that frustration I'm having with one of my kids or with someone else, I need to lay it down. God's not saying continue on. He's saying no. You need to lay it down. You need to repent of what is going on in your life. When we're in distress because of our own sin, we need to cry out for mercy as soon as we're aware of it. Now, the challenge is that we're often not aware of it. That's the danger. That's the deception of sin. But God, he becomes our enemy, lowercase, not our ultimate enemy, to lead us to himself. And so we need to be able to be honest with God about the kind of difficulty and despair we're facing. If it's because of someone else's sin or our own sin, we need to be honest. The second part of this is that we need to be honest with God about our deepest questions. Now, in this passage, there are three questions, which are just gut-level human questions that every single one of you ask. And every single one of you, I bet, have asked it this year, at least this year, maybe even this week. I've got every one of these questions. If you have it, you should, because there's a lot going on in our world that requires some questions of God. Not to hold him to account, man, we're accountable to him, but there's some questions we have about what is going on in this world. The first question that you should feel free to ask is, where are you, Lord? Where are you? This question is asked several times in the text. Verse 11 and 12, where is he who brought him up out of the, brought them up through the sea, the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set the Holy Spirit among them? who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand. Verse 15, where are your zeal and your might, O Lord? Isaiah is saying, not that I don't believe in you, God. He's saying, I can't see you right now. I can't see you. I cannot corroborate my experience in this world with your character. He's not saying, I fundamentally don't think they match up. He's saying, I don't see it. Where are you, Lord? Where are you? That's a good question for you to ask. If you're stuck, if you feel spiritually mute because that's what's going on, I can't reconcile my life and my circumstances or this world with the character of God that we just talked about hoping in, 
you can cry out, where are you, Lord? I, I'm not saying I don't believe in you. I'm saying I can't reconcile my experience with who you are in the scriptures. Where are you? The second question is, why, Lord? Why? Why? That is not an unfaithful question. Why, O oh Lord? 63, verse 17. Why, O oh Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants and tribes that are your inheritance. For a little while, your people possessed your holy place, but now your, our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. Now he's expressing a different struggle of heart. Now he's saying, I know your character is to, is to save us, is to bring us back, but, but why, Lord, are you waiting so long? Think about this. You have a parent or a child who you have been praying for years that they would come to know the Lord. And you don't understand why God is not answering that prayer. I don't either. Why? Why, oh Lord? Why? You don't understand. You don't understand. I don't understand what's going on in Afghanistan. I don't understand. I don't. Why? Why? I don't. I don't know. Doesn't mean God's not faithful. Doesn't mean he's not good. Doesn't mean he's not a savior. Doesn't mean he's not redeemer. Doesn't, doesn't mean he's not in control. Doesn't mean any of that. But it means I, I don't understand. And so why, God, is this happening? Why are you waiting so long? Why are you waiting so long? Why are you waiting so long to return? I mean, this world is messed up. Let's be honest. It is messed up. There's a lot going on in this world that's just totally messed up. Why? Why is God waiting? Well, we know some answers to that question. He is waiting so that more people will come to know him. He's waiting so more and more of his righteousness can be revealed in the world through his church. He's waiting. He's waiting. But I don't understand his timing. And so we cry out, why, Lord, is this your timing? Why, oh, Lord, is this your timing? We cry out. We don't want to be spiritually mute. Alec Motier puts it this way in one of his commentaries. He says, Isaiah knows until the Lord's will towards them changes, then nothing will change. And so when you cry out, why, O Lord, you are crying out that the Lord, his will would bend in your situation. Still, it's up to the Lord. But why, O Lord? I find great comfort in this, and I find great comfort in the third question after why, O Lord, is why won't you? Why won't you? 64 verses 1 and 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would quake at your presence as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil you make your make, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations would tremble at your presence what is he doing what is isaiah doing here he is saying this is what i want you to do i want you to do this i want you to rend the heavens and come down i want you to 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 take care of this situation we're in exile we're in exile here this is not where we want to be. Our homeland has gotten trashed. And we're under the control of our enemies. This is not what we want. So God, why won't you? This is great. Because often, again, for us who are um, Reformed, Presbyterian, we are a little bit cold to this kind of prayer. We feel like we want to figure it out theologically and caveat, you know, because we don't want to mess up God's sovereignty in the moment. You think you can mess up God's sovereignty? 
That's not very reformed, right? That means you can ask for God whatever you want, whatever you think should happen. Now, are you right? I don't know, but God knows, and he's not going to change his will if that's not what he wants to sovereignly accomplish. You're not going to mess with God's sovereignty because you are praying prayers that he may not answer. You just leave it in his hands. But you need to pray, why won't you? Why won't you do this? Why won't you do that? This is supplication. This is prayer of supplication. Lord God, why won't you do this? We need you to act in this situation. I heard a story this morning of a prayer movement that started in China recently because a brother and a sister were being persecuted by the government. They're married. And they started praying at 5 p.m. And they started asking their brothers and sisters to pray at 5 p.m. And more and more brothers and sisters in China started hearing about 5 p.m. prayer. It's a prayer for the persecuted church. They just started praying. And this brokenness of crying out to God, Lord God, why won't you do this? We need your help. Why won't you? Why won't you take this pressure off? Why won't you strengthen us? Why won't you convert our enemies? Why won't you? And it became a movement in China. And now 5 p.m. prayer is movement-wide within the network that I'm a part of because they prayed. That's all they did. They prayed. They didn't do it intentionally, but brokenness led to a movement of prayer. By the way, I, I heard this week that in our new building in May, um, there are, there's a group of Chinese pastors in America who have come here to be trained theologically. Um, and these are leaders in the house church movement in China who are in various seminaries across the United States right now. They can't go back because of COVID and other things that are going on very easily. And so um, we're going to end up hosting in May or June, whenever it works out for their schedule, a conference, a small conference for 20 or 30 Chinese pastors who just want to come together and pray and be encouraged in the word um, as they are studying in the United States. So I didn't know that was going to happen. I offered our place up and someone took it. So that was really cool and I'm really excited and I'll share more when I have more details. But I'm excited about opportunities like that in our building too. It's not just about us. It's about how we can bless so many people through that space. So we want to pray with hope, we want to pray with honesty, and we want to pray with humility, okay? So if you thought that Isaiah hadn't gone low enough, then he goes lower. He goes lower. This is, this is where he is, he is just literally crying out to God. This is in the depths. This is humble prayer. I didn't have Renee read all this. I'm going to read this section 5 through 12. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. How shall we be saved? We, all, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. You have hidden your face from us and made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father, and we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you. 
has been burned by fire. And I love this phrase. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? I mean, wow. Listen, if you want a a faith, if you want to follow a God who allows you to wrestle with the real, deep, frustrating, hard, anxiety-producing circumstances of this world, then you need to be a Christian if you're not a Christian. Because I personally would make a terrible Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim, okay? I just don't have it. I don't have it, and neither do you. If I've got to somehow gin up my own performance and righteousness, I'm telling you, I don't have it. And you don't either, if you're honest with yourself. Without a God who pursues me and reminds me that I need him in the deepest places of my life, I don't know where I would be. I can tell you it would be ugly. But I have a God who reminds me and reminds you that in the depths, in the depths of humility, that we can pray. So first of all, humble prayer flows from a right view of self and a right view of God. First of all, a right view of God. We have a God who is on the side of what is right. We have a God who is on the side of redemption, who's on the side of goodness. What's true of us, we are continually sinning. We are like, we have polluted rags. I mean, it is ugly. I'm not going to get into the imagery there, but it's ugly. It's ugly. It is as ugly as it gets. But this is the honest and true story of God without grace in the picture. God is good and we are not good. So then humble prayer, it first starts with the right view of God himself, and then it asks the crucial question, how then can we be saved? That's the end of verse 5. How can we be saved? Two wrong answers. First is to minimize your sin, to downplay it. Isaiah does not do that. He says, all of us has become like one who is unclean. Our righteous acts are like filthy rags. This is the NIV. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. He does not minimize sin. He does not minimize his situation or the consequences of sin. Again, verse 6 and 7, we all shrivel up like a leaf. The wind sweeps us away. You've hidden your face from us. So our sin and our consequences of sin We cannot, those are the wrong answers to the question. You're just hiding your head in the sand. Your sins are a problem. They're a problem in and of themselves, and they're a problem because of the consequences they produce. How can we be saved? One right answer to the question. Verse 8, humility calls out for grace from God. You are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We're the work of your hand. Look upon us, we pray. We are your people. And then he doesn't hold back from telling God about the wrecked life that has gone on. God, we have wrecked the world through our sin. It's not just my sin. We have wrecked creation. All our pleasant places have become ruins. We can find no peace in this world. All our pleasant places. Think about that. I think that's a beautiful phrase. I had never seen that. Think about the places you normally run. COVID has really messed this up, right? There are things we used to do that would restore us. 
And even those things have been broken. Even many of those, some of those relationships, some of those practices, worshiping indoors, I mean, just the basics of all our pleasant places have become ruins, and they could lead us in the direction of God. Even more, God, I need you in my life more than I ever thought. The right answer to the question is, Lord, have mercy on us. You're our only real hope. Dan Allender, a counselor and writer in his book, it's a really good book, called Leading with a Limp. Leading with a Limp. Talking about Jacob wrestling the angel and how the angel tore his hip even after he changed his name. But Dan Allender wrote, calling out for help from God and others is the deepest confession of humility. Calling out to help for help from God and others is the deepest confession of humility. Let me tell you the corollary. Oftentimes the people, sometimes they're leaders in the church, sometimes they're not, but people who perceive themselves to be the strong ones, who perceive themselves to be the ones who give mercy to others, but they are not on the receiving end of mercy, usually, they, they tell themselves, are the ones that when they hit crises in life, they go all the way from, they go from crisis to nobody cares about me. Why? Because they've told themselves that they're supposed to be the strong ones. They're supposed to be the ones who don't need mercy. They don't need help from others. You're not ready then to receive mercy. And so in the time when you need it, oftentimes it's leaders or people who just consider themselves to be the strongest. They, they, don't, they don't know how to crowd for mercy. They don't know how to tell other people that they need help. They, they're not well practiced in saying I need help from other people. And this is a human condition. We don't want to have to say that we need help from others, but the reality is we do need help from others, and we need help from the Lord. And so we need to develop a practice of being honest and being humble in prayer and in community. And really it's that transparency, that honesty, that, that should ignite redemptive community. It should. It should. It should ignite redemptive community if we're honest. It should ignite like God in us as we have the Holy Spirit in us. It should make us overwhelmed with mercy and compassion to one another, that we would want to give that to each other and help one another heal and be restored. I'll close with this. Why the wilderness? Why the wanderings? Why doesn't God just take us straight from Exodus to promised land? Why doesn't God take us straight from cross to heaven, cross to glory? Why the wandering period? Why the wilderness period? Well, it's oftentimes in our wandering that God deals with our sense of idolatry. And for a lot of us, most of us, it is really an idolatry of the self. It's idolatry of believing that we really can do this. Like, we need grace, we get it, but we can basically do it on our own without really viscerally at a total core and gut level we don't really need God like that. And what God does in the wilderness is he shows us we actually really do need God like that. We really do. All the way at the center. We can't have a little bit of Jesus on top. We've we got to have him all the way in the middle, all the way at the core. And so it's in the wilderness wanderings that God does this. Think about this. Moses, when he was a young man, he killed the Egyptian. Why? He was still trying to control his world. 
Think about Paul on the road to Damascus. What was he doing? He was still trying to control his world, but God mercifully intervenes. For Moses, through the burning bush in the wilderness, he says, Moses, no, it's going to be me. Paul, no, not your way. You're zealous, but for the wrong things, not your way. God meets us on the road of life in the wilderness, and he says, no, not your way, my way. My way is a way of mercy and redemption. And so it's in the wilderness that God wrestles control away from us, and we actually put our hope in the Lord. It's in the valley of the shadow of death and the darkness that's the place of transformation. The dark night of the soul is when we cry out, how will I be saved? God, have mercy on me. Maybe today you are in a time of crucial distress in your life. I would encourage you not to be mute about that. Don't do it. Don't do it. Cry out to the Lord. You can ask him any of those questions. Why, Lord? Where are you, Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Why don't you do this, Lord? Please break through the muteness and cry out to him, and the Lord will meet you with his saving presence. He will meet you. He's already come for us. He's already said it is finished. We need to learn how true that is right now in the moment. It is finished. He has paid for everything. He loves you. Past, past performance is the best predictor of future performance. He has already shown you such compassion and mercy, and he will always give that to you now, and he will give it to you all the way to the end until we reach heaven's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we're just so, so grateful that we serve a God who can deal with the depths of our depravity, the depths of our humanity, the depths of our need. That there is no place we can find ourselves that you will not go with us. There is no valley of the shadow of death that you are not there with us with your rod and your staff comforting us. There is no table that can be set before us where you are not pouring out blessing upon our heads even as the enemy may be across the table. And so, God, we praise you that you are a God who rent the heavens and you did come down, that you did light up the world through your Son. Lord, we worship you. We praise you that you're a God who does not withhold yourself from us in our deepest areas of need, but no, you came near. You came near in our affliction. You were afflicted, and you saved us, not the angel of your presence, you, yourself, saved us. And so, God, would we hope, would we hope, would we persevere? Help us, Lord, to hope in you in the wilderness. Lord, we need you, and we cry out to you as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord.